Howdy doody, folks. Welcome to episode 90 of the Becoming Human podcast. And I'm your guest, Willie Nelson. While I can't sing country worth shit, I sure do like to talk. And in this week, I talk with Jeff Shaw. He's a brown belt under Seth Samp, who is a black belt under Royce Gracie and teaches at Triangle Jiu-Jitsu Academy in Durham, North Carolina. Wow. Jeff moved all the way from the East Coast to the West Coast. Jeff is a journalist who loves poetry and teaches journalism at Western Washington University. Jeff also teaches out of Bellingham MMA. The intersection between writer, teacher, and jiu-jitsu player is fascinating because it's close to my own interests. I feel like we're all like an original amalgamation of some already established interests. Take Jeff, for instance. He's a writer with an interest on journalism, and he does jiu-jitsu. Sure, there's tons of people who do jiu-jitsu. Sure, there's tons of people who are journalists. But that mixture, that's Jeff, among many other things. (laughs) And especially for someone like myself who's figuring out where I'm going in this life, it's really helpful to find someone who's a little bit further along than I am, who has some of the some similar interests that I do. You can check out some rad BJJ apparel made by Jeff at Toro BJJ found at cageside.com. I'll leave the link to Toro BJJ Um, Jeff's classes at Bellingham MMA and the books that were mentioned in this podcast as links in the show notes. And if you guys would like to check out Jeff on Instagram, I'll also include that in the show notes. And if you'd like to support the episode, please rate, review on iTunes, Google Play, wherever you happen to listen to this. It's been a pleasure to be able to do this with Jeff. I hope you guys enjoy this episode as much as I did. the wall, ink to a dry page, shield to the sign, mummy in the casket, farewell evolved, genie in a bottle and I'm running out of time, lines in the sand, hands of a mind, thoughts that we make from the past we define, I don't need a gunshot, I just... Alright everybody, I got my pal uh, Jeff on the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me Will. Yeah, no problem man. Um, so, you're a brown belt in jiu-jitsu, uh, who, who gave you your brown belt? So, uh, I'm a brown belt under Seth Champ, who is a Hoist Gracie black belt. I've been mm-hmm. training under Seth for my whole jiu-jitsu career since I started in 2010, and Seth is Seth got his black belt from Hoist, I got my brown belt from Seth, and Seth's going to come out here and visit. He's been out here one time, okay. comes out to give seminars two or three times a year, and so it's, it's been a real, a real privilege learning <laughs> the art from, from him. About nine years of jiu-jitsu. Yeah. What made you practice jiu-jitsu? So, yeah, nine years, and it seems like it was yesterday. Like, really, it seems like I just walked into the mat, and you know, and it's been such a big part of my life and such a rewarding experience. So, um, to be candid, like, I, like a lot of guys, had seen the first UFCs when I was young in 1993, and I was like, that looks cool. I'd like to do that. But in 1993, really rare that you'd get a chance to train. And so I sort of lived my life traveled all around the world and ended up in North Carolina and I had wrestled in high school and so I knew I enjoyed grappling 
and I'd gotten out of shape. I was 167 pounds, which is the most I'd ever weighed in my life. I'd had an office job and it was a really demanding, like long hours sort of thing. And I just sort of gotten out of touch with the physical parts of, of myself. So I saw, so I, I did a search for jujitsu in the area and I think I got super lucky because often, even if you know you'd love jujitsu, sometimes you walk into a school that doesn't fit you or, you know, you want to fight and they don't do MMA or you want to do self-defense, but they only do sport jujitsu or something mm -hmm. like that. And I walked into Seth's gym and immediately it was home. It was a place where oh. they did all the aspects of the martial arts that I love. They, yes, they train fighters, but they also mm -hmm. train folks that just want to learn self-defense. Yes, they compete in sport jiu-jitsu, but they also do things with a cognizance of, hey, if strikes are involved, mm -hmm. do this, not this. And so I always wanted to have well-rounded fundamental jiu-jitsu that would serve me both in the real world, but also in the academy. And so I happened into the right academy for me, for sure. Mm. And what was your goal at the time? Was it just to get really good at this and... It's a great question, man. Like, so I, I honestly didn't know what to expect. My first night, I went in with two other guys that were friends of mine. Neither of them ever went to another class. And I think I got hooked right away. And so I think my goal at first was, you know, Jack Kerouac, uh, they asked him about writing and he said, you know, my subject is America. And so I need to know everything about it. Mm -hmm. And immediately that's how I felt about jujitsu. <laughs> I was like, I need to know everything about this. And so I competed very early. I think I did my first tournament two or three months in at wow. U.S. Grappling. Had a blast, won some matches, lost some matches, learned a lot, learned how much I didn't know. <laughs> it would later be exposed exactly how much I didn't know. Um, but at that point, yeah, I just decided that jiu-jitsu was going to be a real passion of mine. And so, um, you know, because I'm older, I, 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 you know, I, everybody at my gym trained MMA, trained Valet Tudo, because in the Hoist Gracie Association, you can't really separate jiu-jitsu from fighting and from self-defense. And so I trained a lot of that. But I also started when I was 36. Mm -hmm. And so I thought about taking a fight, did not. And then was like, but I love to compete. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah. so, so I started competing in sport jiu-jitsu, and that sort of became my, you know, I wouldn't say my main focus, but I competed a lot. I, I competed about, I have about 150 competition matches, huh. which is not as many as my friend Dave Porter, who has something <laughs> like 272. <laughs> but, uh, and I wish I'd cataloged exactly how many. But, um, but yeah, I just learned that I loved everything about jiu-jitsu. I love learning it. I love training it. I love competing in it and now I love teaching it. What aspects of competition did you love? So the power of jiu-jitsu is that you know the techniques work because you're trying to do them against a person who is absolutely trying to stop you as hard as they can. And you know if you and, you and me are going to roll later, right? And we're in the academy and we're having good times and I'm trying to help you get better and you're trying to help me get better and we're friends. You, we know each mm -hmm. other. Competition we become friends later. Like, I'm friends with a bunch of people I've competed against, but, like, when I go down to the Portland Open this weekend, I don't know any of these cats. Mm -hmm. I don't know if they're judo guys or guard pullers. I don't know if they're MMA fighters. I don't know if he wants to throw me on my head. I don't know if he wants to barambolo me. And I know he doesn't have my best interests at heart. Mm. And so the power of it is real-world application for the stuff that you use in the gym when you're training. And, like, of course we learn stuff when we roll, right? Because mm -hmm. I'm trying to beat you, you're trying to beat me, and it's great. But there's a lot to be said for, I don't know who this guy is, I don't know what he's going to do, but I know he's not going to try and help me. <laughs> yeah. <You know? laughs> yeah. I've never looked at it from that perspective, but that is kind of more in line with the thing that I love about competition, too, is, is, like, is trying to go against an opponent that A, doesn't have your best interests in mind, um, B, 
both of you really want to win and all of the the psychology that goes behind that right believing in yourself and, and knowing that you can you know do the thing like have the confidence to uh execute what you've been training right and respond to somebody who perhaps has the same level of confidence and if you make mistakes it is very difficult to delude yourself yeah and that's been very helpful for me why and that's one of the reasons why i focus on athletics um more than the arts right now is I'm trying to use athletics to build my character so that I can be effective when I'm creating, right? Because with creating, I maybe I'm ignorant, but I feel like I can slide, squeak by, right, by um, doing less. Dude, I think that is such a valid and important point, and I wouldn't have thought to put it that way, but everybody, I think there's a little voice inside all of our heads that wants to make excuses or quit. And what competition, to, or, or to be like, oh yeah, but this would be different if. And we've all heard, you know, we've, I've heard that voice in my mind, and I've heard people say it out loud, like, well, if this were an MMA fight, <laughs> oh, if this were no gi, oh, if we were in the gi, man, this would be. But, but the reality of competition is that if you go up against the guy and you've agreed to this rule set, and he does something and he beats you, you have to deal with that. And like, man, I was not good enough to pass his guard. Uh, my, my guard was not at a high enough level to stop him from passing. Mm -hmm. I, my choke defense was not on point, so I got caught. I need to improve that. And I think that really is the power of, you know, of any functional martial art. Like, mm -hmm. you know, and, and I mean, jujitsu is my focus, so I think of jujitsu. But, you know, certainly things like Muay Thai and things like wrestling, it's true of all that, too, where it's like, man, I got taken down. Why did that happen? Mm -hmm. It wasn't because I was trying to let it happen. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. It's something to be said, too, because you're matched, you know, uh, in most tournaments by skill level. So it's someone who's doing about the same thing that you are and mm -hmm. comparing yourself, your efforts to another person. Because you're right, like, I've taken the my whole life right i have this this other other side of me that's just like man you can just kind of hang out today and you can rest which is which is fine but it if let um wild it becomes like overindulgence and not in my best interest actually destructive yeah. and that relates to my experience with people who who perhaps have never got into something like this or you know maybe a hobby or anything yeah. for that matter and they're just on a downward spiral where it's like they they completely succumb to that voice and for me this it's like an opportunity though to go against that because i've had like you know periods in my life where i've walked a path that was very destructive for myself and the people around me um and, and even since then right i have I've still felt the resistance, but as I push forward, um, it helps me overcome that. And I guess that would be character building, but it's from what I've considered, right? My experience with, with people at a variety of places on that path of self-destruction, um, it almost requires some form of game to be able to have those self-realizations. Yeah, and this is why competition's powerful, right? Like, I'm not ever going to run because it's just me by myself holding myself accountable, and I really enjoy beer, and I really don't enjoy running. Yeah. So if I jog by a great microbrewery, man, my knees hurt, I've been doing this a mile, I'm out. Mm -hmm. And this is why I think a jiu-jitsu community or an athletic community of any kind is powerful, because I've been in matches or in hard sparring sessions where I'm like, I have no water left in my body. Mm -hmm. I'm exhausted. My fingers are cramping up. I just want to tap and be done with this. And then I think about my teammates and friends who've invested in me holding me accountable. I'm like, can't quit on Seth. Mm -hmm. And it makes you not want to quit on yourself, yeah. which I think is really useful. Two other things about competition that, that I wanted to mention, because you mentioned often we're matched up uh, with skill level, like a brown belt goes against a brown belt. Often it's weight classes. 
two things. First of all, I think everybody should do the absolute division. Mm. And because uh, I've done the absolute division, I'm, I'm about your size, I'm a smaller guy, but like, because it makes your jujitsu better. Mm-hmm. And you want your jujitsu and any martial art, right? When I say jujitsu, I want you to hear whatever martial art you do, whatever style you do. You want to know what works against a guy will sized, but also a guy who's like Big Chris, who's 270 pounds. Mm-hmm. You want, and, and in competition, it's really useful to go up against guys much bigger than you, even if you lose, and especially if you lose, because then you can analyze, all right, why did I lose? Why was I not able to overcompensate for his physical advantages? Okay, what can I do to compensate for those advantages in the future? And the second thing is that one thing I see upper belts doing, and guys that get to be, and this is understandable, but I think it's counterproductive for their jiu-jitsu, when you get to be an upper belt, a lot of upper belts duck the white belts, especially mm. the young athletic white belts, because they're like, oh, I want to play jujitsu with other guys who are skilled, who know the lasso guard, <laughs> who know the fly trap, who know all the, you know, and there's a lot to be said for that, right? We all want to learn and be more technical, and that's a big part of the character building process, is wanting to continue to deepen your understanding. But the thing is, untrained folks do different things than trained folks, and like an untrained guy will never hit you with a barambolo, <laughs> but he might squeeze your head. Mm-hmm. And that's a lot more likely for a knucklehead in the street, just for an example, mm-hmm. to like grab your head and headlock. Most fights in the street start with either pushing and shoving mm-hmm. or g- people grabbing a hold of each other and grabbing each other's heads. And I think a lot of times jiu-jitsu guys who are really active competitors forget that, you know, non-trained people do things, quote, wrong, mm-hmm. unquote. And on the one hand, that's good because we don't want them to do things right. But on the other hand, y- you should be able to react when people do, do things wrong. And like we have, a, we have a guy that trains with us now who's a was a former college football player and very much a white belt, very green, doesn't really understand grappling. Mm-hmm. But man, do not let that dude get a hold of your head. <laughs> you <know>? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and it's good for us to be reminded of that, you mm-hmm. know, because to to prevent like laziness and prevent us from having to relearn lessons that we learned our first ten months of jujitsu. <laughs> exactly. And what has made you stick with jujitsu? Have you had difficulty in being consistent in your practice of the martial art? Man, so so I'm a lu- either a lucky guy or an obsessive guy in that like I I have never fallen out of love with jujitsu, and it's a journey. And people use that analogy for a reason, right? Because sometimes it's like a love affair. You have peaks and valleys, and sometimes you're all you want to do is jujitsu, and sometimes you want to break. I've never really wanted a long break from jujitsu, mm-hmm. and. I can tell you why that is for me. <laughs> the reason that I feel like I haven't ever wanted a break is it's both physically challenging and super intellectually challenging. So even if, like, let's say I'm hurt, right? Like my back hurt, you know, maybe I've had a couple injuries. I think we all have. I can still watch videos. I can still say, like, oh, how was I able to be successful with the Daily Heva Guard a year ago, but I'm not now? Mm-hmm. What am I doing technically wrong? Or what are other guys doing technically well to prevent me from getting to spots? And so my brain stays active even if my body can't engage in the practice. I, I wish I could tell you that there was a secret for like maintaining your passion for the art. Maybe there is, but I don't know <laughs> it. Um, for me, I've just always loved jujitsu, jitsu and th- I-, I can count on one hand the number of days that I didn't want to show up and train. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, in nine years, that's... That's a pretty good ratio. I'll take yeah, it for oh any yeah, practice, that's right? Good, yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I just I just love everything about it, you know. Have you had in all of your other pursuits outside of martial arts, has that been the same or have you 
pursued something and had the realization that you no longer wanted to pursue it? Yeah, you know, that's a great question. And for me, it's kind of the opposite in everything else I've ever done. Like, I'm a, I'm a guy that gets into things intensely mm-hmm. and, like, really loves them and does them really hard for a very short period of time, mm-hmm. usually. And so, for example, I was really into academic debate. I was a competitive debater Ooh. in high school and college, and I was a debate coach. Loved it. I learned so much from it. I recommend it to everyone. I think mm-hmm. it's a cr- one, of the, one of the best things you can do for your brain. Mm-hmm. And... I was just done at a certain point. I just burned out and was like, man, I'm exhausted about spending all this time in the library. I'm exhausted by the competition aspect of it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I still support it and love it, but it's not the kind of thing where I'm going to show up at a debate tournament. And this weekend I'm driving 12 hours round trip to mm-hmm. be at a jiu-jitsu tournament. And I'll get into things like, like th- I think there's nothing that's been in my life like jiu-jitsu. And so it's either something like debate where... I have a relatively short period of time, but I'm like all in on it, doing it all day, every day. <laughs> or it's something like yoga, which has been with me since I was a six-year-old, ill-behaved child, <laughs> and my mom couldn't afford therapy for me, so I did yoga. <laughs> That's perfect. And, right, exactly. And I'm super grateful for it. And, and so I've been doing that more than 30 years, but that's one of the things where I've fallen in and out of love for it, like mm. where, where there'll be, you know, there's a, there have been times in my life where I've done full-on, like, yoga every day Mm -hmm. i'm you know reading books i'm doing videos like i do i love yoga for bjj and then there are times when i won't do yoga for like a couple months Mm -hmm. and i and i will always love it but it's not you know it's it's not my passion anymore Mm. like jujitsu is so yeah jujitsu has really been unique for me i think when you do um stop those pursuits is there any like ego or um emotional response from those Yes, in the competitive ones. That's a great question, too. Like, for for yoga, no. It's more like a, hey, I feel like doing this. I'm really into it. Uh, okay, I don't really feel into it. I'll do something else that I also enjoy that's physical. With with debate, it was very much, you know, and this is when I did, part of this is because I was a younger man at that time, mm-hmm. in my 20s. I was Debate was really ego-driven for me. Like, it was extremely important for me to be exceptional at it, like, when I lost debate rounds, I acted the fool, like really, wow. and like I have, I have stories, and, <laughs> and and like I've never acted the fool after I've lost a jujitsu match, just because like I'm grateful to be out, you know. And don't get me wrong, I hate losing, mm-hmm. like hate it, hate it, hate it. Don't ever want to do it, but like in jujitsu, when a guy beats me, how am I going to be mad for doing to me what I tried to do to him, mm-hmm. you know? And like I respect everybody that steps on the mat to train, and so you know I'll be sad and disappointed, but I, but like in but in 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 debate, partially because I was younger. And maybe some other factors went involved. When I lost, I threw tantrums. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I, and, and it really got to me. Like, I was really depressed about it. And part of that drove me to be successful at it because that feeling of, man, this really sucks. I don't want this feeling again. I'm going to work twice as hard. Yeah. You know, that's valuable too, mm-hmm. right? Because that teaches you to, to come back from failures. But for me, it also drove me down. It, it, and, you know, I think you're astute to identify, like, the ego aspect of that because you can either respond to that in a healthy way. Mm-hmm. Like, man, I want to be better at this. Will just beat me in a debate. I'm going to go research harder and be better next time. Or you can really get down on yourself. Mm-hmm. And one is productive and one is destructive. Yes. You know? So, so yeah. Like, I mean, I think, I think controlling the ego is really important. And it's something – it's not like you ever get done controlling your ego. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? Well, I mean <laughs> – with almost everything, right? Well, no, with everything, because you have jujitsu, right? Yeah. Does yeah. it end? No. <laughs> like, Hopefully, never. Yeah, you know? exactly. And like you know, look, and I think we all have egos. Like one of my really good friends, and a dude that, uh, you know, 
one of the guys I respect most in jiu-jitsu is this guy, Tony Casares. Tony is a black belt under Lucas Lepre, mm-hmm. and he's in North Carolina. Tony's also an educator. He, oh, you know, cool. he's, you know, he's a teacher in Texas, and now he's a teacher in North Carolina. And Tony, w- I was talking to, to Tony about ego, and Tony's an elite competitor. He competed at the Worlds last year, Ooh. lost to Mikey Musumichi. Wow. Right? So he's, that, he's on that level, right? Really, really, really good competitor. And Tony's like, look, we all have ego, you know? And, and I think it's almost worse to be dishonest with yourself and be like, oh, no, I've conquered my <laughs> ego, because <laughs> yeah. then it creeps back up on you and you're not as aware of it. Mm-hmm. But he's like, look, we all have ego. Just control it, you yeah. know? Don't let it get out of control. And um, it's almost worse, I think, to to lie to yourself and be like, no, I'm totally egoless. And mm-hmm. I mean, maybe there's somebody in the world like that, but it's not me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, I think, you know, it's the, if you lie to yourself, right, that that's very dangerous because uh, over time you can catch yourself into lying to yourself in such a profound way that it can corrupt you foundationally, I would imagine. It, if you can't trust yeah. yourself, who can you trust? Yeah, it, it, exactly. Mm, and you know. it's hard to have a, a cohesive um identity at that point you know for sure and and you know and and you know ego gets a bad rap for mm-hmm. you know for with some justification but you know ego is not all bad right like if i lose a jiu-jitsu match and i'm like man i got baron bolo'd mm-hmm. how do i defend that responding to that even if the root of that is ego because you want to be on the podium next time is a productive impulse now you're learning mm-hmm. now you're improving you're not quitting you're mm-hmm. you're working hard toward a goal um you know it, there are of course negative aspects to it too but but, um, you know, fire can burn you or it can heat your house. Yeah, I mean, that's that, that push and pull, right, is you got to learn how to, how to find the middle way. And yeah. there's, you have that dichotomy. It's my experience in even competition, right, where previously throughout my life, before getting into uh, jiu-jitsu and running, I wouldn't, I'd be very afraid to be, like, braggadocious, right? Yeah. And I would say almost the opposite of ego or being egotistical, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so much so that I would shun it. Yeah. But then when I would have to compete, it's like, well, I should strive for being first. Or why else am I here? I can do first. Even if it's with, you know, like Alfred, right? Like my training partner. Instead of saying, oh, you, you got this, man. You, you got this 100%. I don't, you know, just kind of like backing down. It's like, no, I, I'm working really hard to, to do this. I believe that I can. And that's not necessarily bragging. That's just no. confident within my own skills. And that's like getting humble, confused with basic insecurity. And I think you're wise to identify that because that is useful for both you and your training partners like Alfred, right? Mm-hmm. You guys are iron sharpening iron. Yeah. And one of my absolute favorite people in the world, who's also one of my best train part- training partners ever, is Kim Rice. Mm-hmm. Kim is one of the nicest people you'll ever meet. And I hope to have her out for a seminar sometime. And she's a brown belt world champion, brown belt mm-hmm. adult world champion in jiu-jitsu. Is like you were to be one of the nicest people in the world is very confident in her skills, mm-hmm. but doesn't have to tell you about it, ah. right? Which I think is wonderful. And like, it's wonderful, because, you know, it's rude to, from my perspective, it's mm-hmm. rude to walk around talking like you're all that. You should show me. And so when Kim and I, and you know, the way that you describe your, your training with Alfred, like, me and Kim, we started, like, maybe within six months of each other. And, like, we're really dear friends that will just try to kill each other mm-hmm. in training. And that's really valuable, where you can, like, be going, like, tooth and nail hard, like, competition hard. And then afterwards, you're like, awesome, great job. You know, no matter if somebody got tapped, if somebody didn't get tapped, it's like, that, that's extremely valuable. And to recognize mm-hmm. that, that, like, this is, 
this is a person who's trying to make me better and trying to make herself better at the same time. And that's, that's the goal, or it should be the goal mm-hmm. for all of us. And, and I'm so proud of her for, like, like you said, if, if you're not trying to be the best at it, mm-hmm. you know, or the best you can be at yeah. the very least, like, what, 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 what are you doing? <laughs> exactly. And I, I really like how you pointed that out because you're right. You're not as fit for service if you're not trying to be the best version of yourself, even if it is in direct competition with people in your community. And that's, that's really helped me because like I said before, with, with other things of character, I didn't have a way of confronting this otherwise because it was like, you know, I had to believe in myself or else I was going to continually fall short of my expectations. And, you know, having jujitsu allowed me to work that out. Now I'm experiencing that in rock climbing and running, but rock climbing specifically, because if I look at a route and I'm like, I'm not going to send this, you know, this looks a little bit treacherous and I just go, off on self-doubt, right? And then I climb the route and I start getting like the, the sewing machine leg to where it's like bouncing up and down and I'm like, I can't keep it still. It's, oh, this is all inside of my head right now. Like I just saw one of my friends, you know, send this route like quick, like he was climbing a ladder. And then I just use the effective skills, which is, you know, go, returning to breath and then returning on the route, which helps me and helps me in jujitsu and helps me, you know, in life, period. Absolutely. It's, I always say that jiu-jitsu is finding islands of safety in a sea of danger, and I think you can probably say that about (laughs) rock climbing, too. (laughs) (laughs) um, What do you do professionally? So I work for the Sierra Club. Uh, I do communications work. Sierra Club is America's largest and oldest environmental group. We try and protect wild areas, and we try to uh, make the environment uh, about as healthy as it can possibly be. Mm -hmm. The projects I work on involve clean energy. So I'm trying to get the world off of coal power with a project called Beyond Coal and get the world on 100% clean energy uh, for a project called Ready for 100. Mm -hmm. And that's my day job. Uh, I also teach a college, I teach about one college class a term up here at Western Washington University. But most of my life has been journalism and advocacy communications. So Mm -hmm. writing, researching, talking. And that's what I do for the Sierra Club is I, I manage a team of folks who are I manage a team of folks who are trying to get the world to run on 100% clean energy. Really? Wow, that's cool. cool. It's big fun, man. It's a, it's a, it's like it's a it's a very you know, it's a very stressful job. Mm-hmm. Um, it, just in the sense that you know the stakes are high. We got to do this, and yeah. uh, and so that's another reason jujitsu has been mega valuable for me is like calming me down to uh, mm-hmm. you know as I do my daily daily work. So journalism is interesting. Have you always had an interest in writing? I don't understand journalism very well because I, I haven't studied it. Is it more of an interest in writing or is it like an investigative scenario? So it started with the one and went to the other. Like when I, when I was younger, I really wanted to write the great American novel. Whoa. <laughs> yeah. And I still want to, but I haven't yet. Um, oh, wait, yeah. uh, let me cut you off. Who, who were your role models as writers? Wow. <laughs> so I got that's a great question. So I got my started I got my start in poetry, mm-hmm. and so oh. I, so I would have to say Mary Oliver. Um, there's a woman named Naomi Shayab Nye. She's mm-hmm. Palestinian American who was raised in Ferguson, Missouri. Incredible poet. Um, my favorite male writer is probably Russell Banks. He wrote a book called Continental Drift, which is my favorite novel. Um, it lost the Nobel Prize to uh, Lonesome Dove because it mm-hmm. came out the same year as Not Lonesome Dove, oh. but. And uh, and there's actually there are two guys from the Northwest that I'll that I'll name name check as well. One is Raymond Carver, who is both probably the best short story writer ever, and also a terrific poet. 
and uh, a guy named Tim Egan, who uh, he's more of a, a classic journalist, mm-hmm. not, not necessarily an investigative journalist, but he's from Spokane originally, lives in Seattle now, and wrote my favorite book ever about the Northwest, which is called The Good Rain. Oh, really? Yeah, I'll make sure to put that in the show notes. Yeah, man. I, yeah, please do. I, uh, I, I, the, the Good Rain and uh, Raymond, The Good Rain by Tim Egan and Where I'm Calling From by Raymond Carver are two books that I buy to give away, mm-hmm. to give them away to everybody. So, oh, that's so cool. Yeah, it's big fun. And uh, so I majored in English thinking that I would do that, that I would do more creative writing, mm-hmm. fiction, poetry. And I just got more into journalism because I've always been a sort of... I, you know, I want to say activist-minded person. Like, mm-hmm. I, I want to change the world for the better. I want to leave the place a little bit better than I found it when mm-hmm. I kick. And so then I got into investigative journalism. Mm-hmm. Um, and I did a lot of environmental journalism, a lot of journalism focusing on indigenous communities, like both indigenous people here in the U.S., like uh, as well as indigenous communities in Japan. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I worked... And then... Uh, so after I did that, I worked for the tribes of Western Washington for a long time. What did you do for the tribes? I was their information officer for the North Sound tribes on natural resource issues. So, yeah, so I worked with Lummi, Nooksack, Swinomish, Upper Skagit, Tulalip, Soxhawatl, and Stiligwamish, mm-hmm. and just did work on natural resource stuff, so salmon recovery, um, you know, clean energy projects, <laughs> taking out dams, things like that, um, just anything environmental and natural resource related. Mm-hmm. That's really cool, especially how it seemed to almost organically flow, you know, into its own intersection of, you know, ecology and journalism. It really did, man. I mean, I've, I've led a pretty charmed life. <laughs> I mean, at least I feel, I feel, you know, I feel like the luckiest guy in the world most days, yeah. which is which is great. That, that <laughs> is, know? yeah. I, I understand that feeling. Man. I'm, gl- I'm glad you do. <laughs> yeah. And I've even witnessed, like, the you know, the flip-flop between when life goes from, like, you know, whether it's, like, angst or, you know, being destructive or just kind of, you know, bland, maybe. Maybe, and it seems like the, you're living your best life, right? Exactly, and, and I mean I love that phrase too because we all have different interests and we mm-hmm. all have different ceilings. And one of us, you know, I have friends. You know, who is better off, a billionaire who never had kids, or uh, a guy who makes twenty thousand dollars a year and has two kids he loves? Mm-hmm. The answer is we don't have enough information to evaluate because you know it's all about your criteria and what's most important to you mm-hmm. and. So if you feel like you're living your best life and you mm-hmm. feel like you're the luckiest guy in the world, it's a pretty good indication you've made good choices. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. And it's not such a you know cookie-cutter destination because that's what I, I go back and forth with because I meet people like you, right, where, or people like yourself, where you've been doing this thing for, for a while now, right? You've mm-hmm. committed yourself. And that doesn't look like what that – committing yourself isn't like, in a successful way, right, or not a successful way, but a fulfilling way, is not top five of the grapplers in the United States. Um, it's It can be that, but sure. it could also be having your own school. Like, it's very unique to the individual. And figuring that out as opposed to denying yourself, whether it's because you can't follow through or you're ignorant to, oh, maybe I should try, you know, teaching or instead of competing, or maybe I should just try something else. Um like that's like I'm figuring out that path as an individual, and, and it's really helpful to to listen to people like yourself because I'm like, okay, maybe I don't want to just be you know top five. I'll try, but this fits into my life in another way, yeah. and it's very comforting because that's define helping me define what successful and fulfilling is. You know, exactly, man. And it's like it's I, I don't. It's a constant process, right, mm-hmm. too, because what's important to me now is way different than what was important to me at 25 or 30 years old. And, I mean, there's common elements, right, you know, mm-hmm. fundamentally. 
Um, you know, your fundamental values will probably always be your fundamental <laughs> values. But what makes you happy, what gives you joy, what helps you in your dealings with other people may change as you progress on your journey. And, you know, we got to create space for that as well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And um, regarding writing, too, how has your interest for writing evolved? So I started out as a poet. And I was very serious about it, and I really wanted... And I published a couple poems, but not very many. You did? Yeah, yeah, just a few. And this one, I, when I was... I, you know, and I think at that point, um, I had to... Dis like, honestly, debate is what mm -hmm. took over my life at that point. Yeah. I went to Lewis and Clark College out of, out of, out of, on a debate scholarship, and I studied under this guy, Vern Rutsala, a great American poet. Mm -hmm. And I had basically a choice to make where, and I wish I could tell you it was a conscious choice, but I don't think I was mature enough at that time to even make it a conscious choice uh, because I wanted to do poetry and I wanted to do debate. And I think at that time I was driven by my impulses so much that I was like, whatever my animal self wanted to do is what I did. Mm -hmm. And so I just did debate and I researched and I competed and the poetry kind of went by the wayside and I wouldn't return to it much later. Mm -hmm. um, and at that time, like I, I've, you know, and I've always had ideas for short stories and long form fiction. And I, I've dabbled in that over the years, mm -hmm. but most of my writing has taken place in terms of journalism and investigative journalism. And part of that is what I think is important mm -hmm. in life, but also it's, it's tough to pay the bills with poetry. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know? That's what I kind of struggled with, too. And I was like, poetry? I like comedy, too. And <laughs> no, totally, man. I mean, if you can make a living as a comic, mm -hmm. God bless you, you yeah, know? Yeah, because <laughs> I started off as a poet. Oh, really? And, uh, yeah, and I would perform over, like, Nito Burrito over in Spokane quite often. But then I didn't really have anyone to look up to, necessarily. I was just trying to figure it out. And um, then I mo moved over here um, to you know, just north of Seattle, and I went and performed down there, and it was, the kind of poetry that was being performed was very different from the kind of poetry that I was reading about, yeah. like Kerouac, Gary Snyder, Philip Whalen, yeah. stuff like that, like, I really like that, um, you know, like, beat poets. Sure. And Lawrence Ferlinghetti. Yeah. yeah. And like, then I looked at comedy though, and it was like, I, I can at least perform and write, yeah. but I'm still caught in between both of them. Like, I have a deep love for them. Well, I mean, and you don't have to choose, man. Mm -hmm. Life is long, and you'll do different things at different parts of your life. One thing, too, and I'm, this is actually super relevant to your <laughs> focus on the physical arts. So, of all the beats, and I got to tell you a story sometime about Alan Ginsberg hitting on me. What? Yeah, for real. <laughs> uh, maybe we can I, can I can tell her on the podcast if yeah. you want. But but so absolutely. So the only real beat poet that's still alive is Lawrence Ferlinghetti. Mm -hmm. Ferlinghetti's 93 years old, oh. right? And he's still active. He still has City Lights books down in San Francisco. And so Jack Kerouac is dead. Alan Ginsberg's dead. Neil Cassidy's dead. Like all these folks are long dead. Somebody asked Ferlinghetti about 10 years ago. Why you, know, why? you know, you were older than all these guys anyway, and now you've outlived them all. What's your secret? And Ferlinghetti's like, those guys went to the bar. I went to the gym. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I mean, I don't think he was as flippant as I just was, yeah. but I also think there's something to that. Oh, yeah, right? absolutely. Yeah. So, uh, so one year I was at... So when I was, when I was at Lewis and Clark, I had a girlfriend, and... Uh, I wanted to show her some of the, the poetry that was important to me. Mm -hmm. And Allen Ginsberg was alive at that time. And so he came to Powell's Books in Portland, Lewis and Clarkson in Portland. So I was like, we got to go. <laughs> and I'm always pathologically early every place I go. Mm -hmm. So I get there like two hours early, right? <laughs> and me and my girlfriend, what are we going to do? We're at Powell's Books two hours before this reading. So we're wandering the poetry stacks. And... I turn the corner, and there is Alan Ginsberg. Oh. Right? And it's hours before the reading, so nobody's, like, around. And it's just 
there he is, like looking at poetry. And I think he was looking at books by Leslie and Newman, but I'm not sure. I, I can't, I'm not sure if I remember. And so I have a copy of Kaddish. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, Mr. Ginsburg, oh my God, we're here, to, we're here to see you tonight. And he's like, super gracious. He's like, here, let me sign your book. I still have this book. So as he's signing the book, and I was 19, I was a freshman in college. Mm-hmm. As he's signing the book, he looks at me and he says, so do you go to high school around here? And I, anxious to make the great poet feel comfortable, mm-hmm. say, oh no, Mr. Ginsburg, but, but I understand. A lot of people tell me I look like I'm 14 years old, <laughs> which was true. He looks me up and down and he says, don't worry, it just makes you more attractive. <laughs> and I look at my girlfriend and my girlfriend's like, do you want to? And I'm like, no, 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 no. But, but it's flattering. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then years later, I would encounter somebody that he had taught at Naropa who told me, I'm definitely not the only person who has a story like that. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> but, but yeah, it was flattering and I'm glad that that happened. Still have the book too. Really? Yeah, oh, yeah. that's so cool. It was pretty fun. Uh, yeah, um, I didn't know you were a poet, man. That's uh, that's that's great. It's, yeah, it's I, I've always loved it. I was inspired by like some indie hip hop artists, and then they who were more like more poetic, uh, had more poetic sensibilities. Yeah. Right. Well, I guess actually most hip hop artists do. Yeah. Um, it's the roots, right? It, I, mean, the, I mean, not just the band, the roots, but like, yeah, yeah, you know, exactly. the roots of hip hop are in urban poetry, and mm-hmm. and that's the thing that that just turned me on to it. And ever since then, like I've I've been a writer since um, since I was ten. Oh wow. And yeah, and I didn't. I struggled with, you know, what I like to spend my time on. And then even recently, I've reflected back to it, reading uh, Jack Kerouac. Mm-hmm. And I'm, he made me fall in love with writing even more. And it's now consolidated my, my goals uh, outside of, you know, my sports and such and outside mm-hmm. of the podcast to just be a writer. Yeah. And that's where I always wonder, like, mm-hmm. does writing in jiu-jitsu ever intersect for you? I mean, not as much as it should. Like, mm-hmm. honestly, most of my creative energy in jiu-jitsu goes into podcasting and creating videos because, mm-hmm. you know, writing about, uh, like, I would love it if there were really good jiu-jitsu journalism out there. <laughs> yeah. And I don't want to say that there's not, <laughs> so I won't say anything. <laughs> yeah. But, but I, w- I would love to do, like, where, where writing, like, part of it is that other people are doing the interesting stuff that I would like to do. Like, Robert Drysdale mm-hmm. is making a great documentary about, the, about jiu-jitsu history. It's mm-hmm. called Closed Guard. Um, there's a, <laughs> that's clever. Yeah, and it's and and like I'm I'm fascinated with jujitsu history, mm-hmm. and so that's what I would want to write about. I'd want to write about like, hey, this is what happened in Japan that presaged Count Coma coming to Brazil. Here's what happened in Brazil. Here's the first Americans to do this, mm-hmm. and, and that's what I would want to write about. And other people are doing that, which is awesome. Which yeah. means I don't have to. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, my, my like I haven't really actually. I lied, uh, which is. I've written, I wrote a pilot for a jiu-jitsu sitcom. What? No, yeah. That'd be so cool. Yeah. It's, I mean, I'll be candid. It's not very funny right now. Um, you just need, need a laugh to, track. Need to make, exactly. It's just a big laugh track. I need to, yeah. I need to make, I, I need like a bunch of big thugs, like making people laugh. Yeah. But no, or I could just make it, or I could just make it funnier. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, like no, now that I know you have comedic sensibilities, maybe I'll have you read it. Cause like, cause I, I, I the thing about jiu-jitsu is, um, in terms of narrative, right? There, there's one thing going for it and mm-hmm. one thing going against it. Mm-hmm. Going against it is very few people do this, right? It's a niche pursuit. You know, more people do it than ever before, but it's still not that very, not many people, so not many people know about it. The great thing about it, though, is you have all these diverse personalities intersecting in this very extreme physical space, mm-hmm. which gives itself to really interesting situations. Yeah. Right? Like, where else can you choke your boss? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, or your kid. Or your kid. Yeah. Right? No, exactly. Right? Exactly. Your wife, right? Yeah. Like I, I mentioned before, I gave my wife her blue belt this year and it was one of the best things that ever happened to me and and that's an unusual situation. Yeah. Um, and so, 
so yeah, so I've written a jujitsu sitcom pilot. Um, I don't know how much time I'm going to have to devote to that project, but I would love it if I could have that see the light of day. Yeah, someday. exactly. That'd be cool. Yeah, it'd be big fun. Um, is there anywhere where people could check out uh, about your classes and stuff like that? Absolutely. So if you're interested in taking jiu-jitsu classes, we have BellinghamBJJ.com. If you're ever in Bellingham, come by. It doesn't matter what affiliation you are. It doesn't matter what level you are. It doesn't matter who your instructor is. We welcome everybody. Come by and train with us. I also have, uh, thanks a lot for having me on your mm-hmm. podcast. Yeah. I have a podcast called Dirty White Belt. You can check that out at DirtyWhiteBelt.com. And, uh, yeah, just email me, jeff at bellinghambjj.com. We'd love to, I always love to train with new people. Yeah, absolutely. I'll be sure to uh, leave all those links in the show notes and link to the books, too. Thanks, Jeff. I Dude, appreciate thanks, it. thanks, Will. I had a blast. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you guys for listening to this episode of the podcast. If you'd like to learn more about Jeff, you can find his link to Instagram, his jiu-jitsu classes, and his podcast, Dirty White Belt Radio, in the show notes. Woo! I love finding meeting friends that have similar interests to mine and have walked the thousand mile path just a little bit more than me or less or the same amount perhaps either way my life's just getting more and more exciting and from what i gather that's what happens when when you aim for something you happen to miss i miss a lot but then you know what to do because you just course correct, right? You shore up your resources, figure out what you did wrong, and continue the thousand-mile path. <laughs> if you guys would like to support the show, please head over to Becoming Human Podcast, pick up some merch, or leave a comment. Maybe leave us a review on iTunes, Google Play, wherever you happen to listen to this and until next week y'all thanks bye face to the window back to the wall ink to a dry page heel to the sign mummy in the casket farewell evolve genie in a bottle and I'm running out of time lines in the sand hands of a mind thoughts that we make from the past we define I don't need a gunshot I just need a trigger uh. finger in my chest fell in love that way stuck it till I broke it off samsara find another heart to cross and make it soft karma is the shot in the target too darkened room gets illuminated as soon as the eyes open the market's doomed heavy eyelids fed sedative dyes bred for compliance dead the rights Quick to deny it, make it hard to prove Solutions sign elusive in the future Thick behind the dust cover the suffering we used to I don't need a gunshot I just need a target to hit I don't need a gunshot I just need a target to hit I don't need a gunshot I just need a target to hit All I hear are gunshots All I hear are gunshots I don't need a gunshot I just need a target to hit I don't need a gunshot I just need a target to hit I don't need a gunshot why does one man have more beds than he can sleep in? Where's the line between competition and preying on people's weakness? When did truth become a secret? Was a starving mouth to say to the land that fed his family for generations and degraded in chemical sand? How could a conscious mind find relief when it's come to believe that violence is a marker along the path to peace? Why is average?
advertisement good Propaganda bad, insatiable desire Painting lines inside my lonely head Learn behavior, transfix robotic captain Sinking ship, limbic system bored with primal impulse Cut the wire, tripping ego, domino effect Letting go, distorted breath Less amused with my regret More in tune, mindfulness The time it takes to think my way out of this empty feeling I will choose to fill my being with the beauty that consumes me I ruined what confused me, became you Started being me by doing Every day is my funeral I don't need a gunshot. I just need a target to hit. I don't need a gunshot. I just need a target to hit. I don't need a gunshot. I just need a target to hit. All I hear are gunshots. All I hear are gunshots. I don't need a gunshot. I just need a target to hit. I don't need a gunshot. I just need a target to hit. I don't need a gunshot. I just need a target to hit. All I hear are gunshots. All I hear are gunshots. Truth is simple. No lines, petals bloom, metal die Metal tools will fly into the sky And who knows what they'll find Satisfaction killed the cat Bottle time, this is that I don't need a gunshot I just need a goal to chase No, I won't say that I know the way Or how to mold the clay Or control the rain I just rode the train when I was told to stay So I fold and pray till I'm old and gray So how much of my emotional state Do I contribute to the things that I do Providing a sense of security Death to the purity Guiding my higher brain through the mazes Every habit I blindly created when I was awake is a testament I use as evidence to support changes That I make in my life to see order in chaos and accept the pain waves I don't need a gunshot I just need a target to hit I don't need a gunshot I just need a target to hit